Hey there, welcome to the fifth episode of Open Floor. I'm Ali Mosalli. And I'm Arya Narayan. And we're your hosts for Open Floor. Before we begin, please follow us on wherever you get your podcasts like Spotify, Overcast, and Apple Podcast. Also, please check out our website at openfloor.me forward slash home and follow us on Instagram at Open Floor Podcast. Now, on to the episode. This year has brought us many unprecedented phenomena stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic. Right. And since mid-March, much of the United States has been uh, locked down or severely limited. Uh, A problem that has emerged from these abnormal circumstances has been continuing to maintain a healthy lifestyle. At this point, it has become harder to stay on track with our health goals due to the inability to get outside as well as difficulty in purchasing healthy foods. Now more than ever, our health should be our number one priority, whether that be our physical health or staying protected from COVID-19. This means making sure to follow basic health guidelines, such as wearing masks in public, not touching your face, social distancing, and washing your hands. We're very lucky to have Dr. Zarin Farouhi, a cardiologist in Boston, Massachusetts, with us today to talk about our health. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ali and Aryan. It's my pleasure to be here. All right, so let's get started. Uh, This novel coronavirus is just that, novel. Though it may only be seen as a respiratory illness, observations by public health professionals around the world have noted atypical cases of COVID-19 that can actually affect other parts of the body. As a cardiologist, could you speak about some of the other possible effects this coronavirus might have on the cardiovascular system? Uh, Sure. And as you mentioned quite correctly, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which we generally refer to as COVID-19, is a novel virus. And everyone, that includes healthcare professionals, uh, is encountering this for the first time. Um, So, you know, there's been uh, a lot of uh, actively evolving information about the virus. And so one thing that I'd like to just uh, let people know is, is that Uh, It can affect, uh, it's not necessarily atypical if it affects other organs, Uh, it just reflects uh, a more serious complication of the disease. Uh, So we all know people who've got the virus and uh, some people have been asymptomatic, some people have had, you know, flu-like symptoms, uh, and then of course in the worst case, uh, people have died from serious complications. So there's many active areas of research for us uh, in terms of trying to predict who's going to get these more serious complications and what we can do to treat the disease. One thing we do know is that people who have chronic diseases, including pre-existing heart disease, are much more likely to have a harder time fighting the infection, and they're much more likely to get serious complications. So for example, if you compare two similar people of perhaps, you know, the same sex or age, uh, but one of them has known heart disease and the other doesn't have heart disease, Uh, the person with heart disease automatically gets placed into a higher risk category compared to the person without heart disease. Um, And one way to think of this uh, without getting uh, too caught up in details is to think of what normally happens when we get sick with any virus. So, you know, we all know that the body has a built-in defense system, which we call the immune system. And when we get an infection, let's just say it's like the normal cold virus, uh, even with a a small infection, for example, our immune system works to prevent the virus from replicating further and to remove it from our bodies. So this is going on even if we only have something like the sniffles or uh, don't really necessarily feel so bad. Now, 
when the body gets revved up like this and the immune system's activated, uh, and then of course, if there's viral particles floating around in our bloodstream, all of this is um, not normal for our day-to-day -day life. And it puts an increased stress on our hearts, uh, even if we don't have existing heart problems. Now, let's just imagine someone who does have an existing heart issue, like let's say, for example, as someone has a partially blocked heart artery. And the goal of heart arteries is to supply blood to the heart muscle. In everyday life, we are all getting heart blood flow to our heart muscle. And now suddenly, let's say there is an infection, that puts increased demand on the heart um, and also means that the heart needs to get more blood flow to meet that demand. So if someone's heart artery is partially blocked and they suddenly have to meet a higher demand, uh, that puts a strain on the heart. And that also can result in some heart injury or damage. So even if someone didn't have COVID-19, if they had another infection, we can see signs of the strain on the heart. But obviously, um, with this infection, we're seeing you know, a lot more complications, more than you would see with a normal cold. Now, without getting into too many heart-specific details, uh, there are heart attacks that occur because of an acute uh, disruption to blood flow, which is sometimes um, by something called a plaque rupture, which is basically uh, a term we use to describe when cholesterol builds up or forms a plaque in the heart artery, and then it suddenly becomes unstable. And when it becomes unstable and has a rupture, a blood clot forms inside um, that heart artery and actually disrupts blood flow to the entire region that was getting uh, blood in terms of the muscle that was getting blood at the time. So we see that this can occur in more frequently in times of infection, as well as other risk factors that can cause this to happen. So what about people who have no heart disease at all? So what we're seeing in these early days of coronavirus infection and people who are coming to the hospital a lot more frequently than they're coming now, we would routinely be checking uh, their blood for a sign of heart damage, which is represented by a protein that gets released into the blood called a troponin, or we call it a troponin level, but the protein is a troponin. And so we were seeing that in sicker patients, these troponin levels were rising, and we weren't sure initially whether this was because of this acute plaque rupture type phenomenon that I described before, um, or was it because of direct invasion of coronavirus uh, into the heart tissue itself, or was it a sign of this systemic response to infection with some heart strain because of maybe this supply-demand uh, mismatch occurring? And so now that we have, we've had several weeks, um, actually months of dealing with this, uh, it seems to be that uh, while there is a small, very small percent of people that could be having, you know, direct heart problems related to the virus itself or actual heart attacks, most of the people are having uh, this more systemic type of response. So if you're infected uh, and you start releasing a lot of biochemicals uh, related to your immune system, um, that can give rise to uh, this syndrome of having some myocardial damage, but not necessarily due to a primary heart issue. So I know this is a little bit confusing, so I just want to explain a little bit of the pathophysiology of the disease itself. So what we think happens in people who are 
getting sick enough to come to the hospital. Uh, we think that in the first few days of their infection, maybe even the first week of the infection, that's when the virus starts replicating. And you know, the virus's job is to basically replicate um, as much as possible. And so our immune system has started to work to suppress the virus. Uh, but unfortunately, for some people, the immune system has gone into overdrive and is releasing a lot more biochemicals uh, that needs to be released to contain the virus. And this is typically happening in the second week of this infection. So when the body's host defense system starts to basically go into overdrive like this, you, you get a lot of damage to other parts of the body uh, as a form of collateral damage, if you will. So to summarize, basically, we do see effects of the coronavirus on the heart itself. Um, and typically, that's really occurring due to more of a secondary response to viral um, infection, as opposed to a direct uh, invasion of the virus into the heart muscle itself. I hope that was clear. That was a bit of a long answer to your question. So uh, just to clarify for our listeners, you'd say that uh, the immune response to um, an infection by COVID-19 is what causes damage to the body that's not immediately caused by the coronavirus? Not necessarily to all of the body. Like we know that, you know, coronavirus is, is generally targeting uh, the lung, but it, ca- but it does target the other organs as well. But what we're finding is, is that in those people who are having this multi-organ involvement, like the liver, the kidneys, the heart, uh, that seems to be driven more so by our own immune system kind of going out of control in a way. But this is still an area of, you know, active research because there's a couple other things which I didn't touch into. You know, we do see that uh, some people are having a lot more blood clotting problems. Uh, and that is also usually does happen with an infectious process, but it's happening, uh, you know, to a degree where it's uh, involving the other organs. Like you've, I'm sure you've all heard of young people who are having strokes. Um, you know, we don't typically see that with just things like the common cold. Um, So that's definitely related to coronavirus, um, and that's another thing that we are investigating. But some of the other, this um, more systemic inflammatory response, that's actually due to our own response that's kind of gone into overdrive. Well, thank you for the very detailed and uh, very full response. So moving on, kind of during this time, many people have been letting go of more healthy eating habits and have turned to junk food, maybe due to its easy accessibility and maybe due to its uh, comfort that it may provide. And so what detriments may this have on our health and what advice maybe do you have uh, for these people? Uh, This is a very good point um, and obviously something that we are all doing, which is uh, not a good thing. And especially, I think, in the early days when there was this mad rush to get to the grocery store, I know shelves which had a lot of what we call junk food were pretty much empty. Um, And some of that is, as you mentioned, Ali, that it's it's comfort food um, and also maybe convenience uh, that people don't have to worry too much about cooking since everyone's going to be at home. It'd just be easy to to eat something coming out of a a packet or a a box. Uh, But the reality is, is, and, you know, we all know this because we call it junk food in day to day speech, that uh, foods like this are not nutritionally equivalent to healthy foods, for example, you know, getting something out of a box is not the same as having, a, you know, a whole piece of fresh fruit or uh, vegetables. Um, so 
there's a lot of problems uh, with eating in this way, but I, I just want to mention two. Um, and one is, is that if you're maintaining the same calorie diet, but now you're eating junk food where previously you weren't, uh, that means that you've replaced something in your normal diet with this junk food item, whatever it may be. So if you've now replaced this nutritionally good food with the junk food, then that obviously over the long term is going to have um, a health consequence. And the other thing to think about, though, is if you're still eating the same calories or your basic caloric meals content is the same, but now you've added junk food. So you're actually what you're doing is you're increasing your caloric intake. And again, over time, that will result uh, in weight gain. Um, as well as, you know, the other detriments to eating non-healthy food, um, but especially the weight gain, because we're also not having the same activity level that we used to. So both those two things combined, eating more calories and doing less activity um, will contribute to weight gain. So if you're someone who's at a healthy weight for your height um, and you start eating like this, then, you know, there's always a chance that you'll suddenly tip over into a non-healthy weight for your height. Um, and then if you're someone who's already at not at a good weight level, then this is going to be, you know, even worse. And so the issue is, is that, you know, why are we eating food that maybe we didn't eat so much before? And as you mentioned, Ali, this is a comfort type of thing in times of stress or in times of depression and in times of even boredom. Uh, sometimes we reach for food when we really are not hungry. And I think one way to avoid this is, of course, first is to identify it. Um, and then the second is, is to make a conscious decision when you go grocery shopping uh, to avoid those aisles. Uh, and at least the junk food aisles are pretty much it's all together. So, you know, you wouldn't be hopefully tempted when you're in these other aisles. Uh, and then, of course, now that we're all at home and we're with our families, uh, if someone else is buying the food and there's already this food at home, uh, before you kind of reach for it, I would say to just take a step back and think about whether or not you're actually hungry. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we're driven to eat, but it's really because of thirst. So uh, maybe drinking a glass of water and then seeing if you still need to eat the snack. Um, and then also, if you figured out that it's really an emotional response, uh, then I'm recommending uh, a lot of people, myself included, to is to seek an alternative activity that doesn't involve eating. And specifically, um, you know, going for a walk or doing some form of exercise uh, is a kind of a doubly in our favor because, you know, not only will you feel good because of the endorphin release after you exercise, but you'll also be burning up some excess calories that you might have gained by eating the junk food in the first place. So that would be my recommendation. Yeah. So thank you very much uh, for that really detailed response about why consumption of food, especially some that might be more unhealthy, is especially damaging your time like this because of the lack of exercise that many people are having right now. And we're actually going to talk about that. So the majority of gyms have been closed down for months now, along with parks, tennis, uh, and basketball courts, and swimming pools, uh, which are areas where people traditionally get most of their activity. Uh, how can being sedentary while we stay at home affect our health? And how do you recommend us to stay in shape while we are stuck at home? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question because uh, it's a very real question and, and something that uh, a lot of us, you know, we've been struggling with because we don't 
actually have exercise equipment in our homes. So a lot of research has been done uh, into the effects of having a sedentary lifestyle and, and the results are bad. Uh, so basically, uh, doing less is worse for us. And the three big ones that are very tied together and are not good for our health are obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. Uh, cancer is also related to this. Um, if They're all tied in with sedentary behavior. So um, the good news is, is that this particular risk factor, sedentary behavior, is actually under our control compared to other risk factors, for example, like age. None of us can control um, aging. Uh, but sedentary behavior uh, is an easily fixable problem if, if we have the motivation and ability to, you know, to, to be more active. Uh, so as with the rest of, uh, you know, the state of Massachusetts, uh, until just this past week, um, gyms and local YMCAs had been closed. Um, and I know that uh, people are still a little bit more hesitant about going back to these places because of the concern for, you know, being indoors and maybe um, not having enough social distancing uh, in that environment. So it really is a challenge to kind of stay more active in, in this scenario. And if you don't have, you know, like a treadmill or a bike at home, I would say that uh, still trying to get out and maybe do some hiking or walking or jogging, depending on your ability, um, is ideal. And um, maybe going at times when not so many people would be around, um, you know, obviously uh, daylight is, is recommended, but if you're going with more people, if you wanted to go for a walk in the evening, it should be people that you're currently living with, you know, trying to fit that into your schedule would be very good. I also know people have been using um, exercise uh, apps and also some gyms uh, have put in some workouts online. So trying to do that at home is, is also a good idea. And even simple things like using exercise bands if you don't have weights or skipping rope, um, just adding 10-15 minutes here and there to the day uh, would be a good way to, to, you know, to keep active even though it's, it is still somewhat restricted. Um, of course, if you are being more adventurous and, and going outside or using the gym, um, you definitely want to follow the guidelines and um, still wear a mask and still try to stay uh, away from people. Uh, as much as possible. And then just for your audience, uh, and this is something I think not everybody knows about, uh, there are specific guidelines about uh, how active we should be, and the AHA um, has guidelines on their website as well. But uh, basically for adults, uh, the recommended amount of act physical activity is 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week, and then interspersed with about at least two days a week of some form of uh, weight training. And then if you're a runner or someone who does more high intensity physical activity, that's actually 75 minutes a week instead of the 150 minutes. Uh, of course, uh, each person who listens to this has to take into account, you know, their age and uh, recommendations from their personal physician, but that's a general kind of adult uh, guideline. Again, very detailed response, and I think it's very beneficial for our listeners to hear, especially now, uh, with regards to uh, how much exercise should they be doing, um, and 
let's say the amount of exercise per week that should be done. And uh, however, I want to shift gears into a more into a topic that maybe is a little bit more different than what we've been talking about. And so because of the pandemic, many sources uh, have shown that vehicle traffic and factory emissions have decreased significantly, and it's been leading to an overall dip in air pollution. And so now, although this uh, dip is beneficial to the environment, what benefit, if any, does it have on our health? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I could say that, you know, there's really no positives that go along with air pollution. So there's just like less pollution is better uh, for many, many reasons, including the environment and also including our health. And just to point out, like if you you guys are too young to know this, but, uh, you know, a long time ago before we had all the scientific studies, people used to be told by their doctors to go to the seaside, get some fresh air for their health reasons. Um, and that's actually true. So breathing in a clean environment, um, it's better for your lungs, but it's also actually better for your heart. Um, and, you know, there's actually been quite a few studies that have looked at the effects of air pollution on heart disease. Uh, and this includes a uh, risk of having heart attacks, uh, actually having high blood pressure can all go along with long-term uh, chronic air pollution uh, exposure. So I'm not sure how we'll continue to improve the air quality, but, um, you know, this is definitely food for thought that uh, having cleaner air is, is, is beneficial overall. Yeah, it might seem like an obvious thing that air pollution is bad for our health, but it's something that we really need to emphasize because of how damaging carbon, methane, other uh, gases in the air can be to our health. And now to talk about another uh, risk to wrap up, we want to talk about how for students and adults alike, stress has recently been on the rise. Uh, for example, with worries for students regarding test scores and how schools are going to start up in the fall for people our age, as well as obvious anxiety for everyone about coronavirus, stress levels have been quite high. What are the dangers and detriments of carrying so much stress on our health? Yeah, this is also a great question. And, and you know, some of these questions, honestly, are, are topics, uh, whole topics in and of themselves. But I'll try to make it uh, brief. Basically, you're right. There, you know, there's a lot of stress and anxiety. And as you mentioned, it's not just just an older population, but uh, younger people also. Um, so I guess the first thing I would like to say is, you know, this situation that we're in, it's really unprecedented. I mean, I, I don't think anybody else has, uh, you know, has been in a pandemic, at least a very small percent of the population would have been in a pandemic ever in their lives before. So um, having some degree of anxiety to this unknown situation is, is a completely normal reaction. And, you know, just because it's normal doesn't mean that we shouldn't deal with it. I know that at least from different employer perspectives, there's there's been a lot of emphasis on stress reduction techniques uh, through workplace sites, uh, but uh, hopefully also um, schools may have also done that because, you know, chronic stress uh, is not a good thing at all. And it definitely has uh, long-term effects, uh, especially like in my field is uh, related to the heart. So we do know that uh, chronic stress as well as PTSD plays a role in heart disease and health issues. So we don't want this short-term stress to become long-term stress. So I would say that 
if people are feeling overwhelmed and it's to the point, you know, it's interfering with um, your daily life, first, certainly the first step is to reach out to your um, healthcare provider. Um, and I'm sure they have several resources uh, and sometimes even just talking to someone about it um, can help. Um, of course, you know, I am a big proponent of exercise. So uh, just in the day-to-day ways to feel a little bit better, um, trying to incorporate exercise into your daily routine um, it would be a good thing as well. And then socially, you know, talking with friends um, seems to help a lot, I think, with uh, just understanding that we're not alone in this and, and that actually a lot of people are stressed and that, that does sometimes seem to help um, make people feel better. I think finally, though, um, taking some positive steps to improve your understanding of what is going on uh, would be helpful. So uh, I know in the beginning we were all getting overloaded with the news, but I think specifically if you're if you're worried about going back to school, uh, then maybe becoming a little bit more informed with your individual school to see what they're doing to minimize student risk uh, would be a good way so that you're not still trying to figure this stuff out and you know, worrying about it. Um, and if your school is receptive, um, if if there are some ideas that you as students come up with, uh, maybe also just relaying this to the school to see if uh, it's something that they can reasonably and realistically do uh, to, to improve everyone's stress level. And, and to be honest, I think the teachers are probably also um, having some stress about this because um, you know, they don't also want to be exposed and they don't want to expose their children uh, in terms of their students. So I hope that, um, you know, the school system will be explaining all of their strategies uh, to the parents and the students. And I think that should, in some degree, help everyone involved. Uh, of course, like I said before, though, if, if it's something that's really, you know, interfering with your, your day-to-day life, then you definitely should reach out to your healthcare provider and, and seek some additional help. All right. Well, I think that this is a great place to close out our discussion. Um, honestly, all of the things you said are uh, stuff that we should take into account, especially um, in the situation we are now. And so thanks to you, we've gained some valuable perspective on how to stay healthy and uh, build a good lifestyle uh, in our current situation. Yeah, uh, the current moment that we're living in is historic and there's so many complexities that we have to keep in mind. And among all those other things we have to worry about, we have to put uh, first and foremost our health into the limelight of what we have to uh, preserve. And I hope that you, the listeners, can benefit from this discussion and hopefully you also learn something new and useful from it like we did. Thank you very much to Dr. Faruqi for coming onto the podcast and it was a pleasure. Thank you, Lily and Aryan. I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. And with that, we conclude this fifth episode of Open Floor. I hope that today's discussion was as informative for you as it was for me, and possibly was even able to show you new perspectives on some of these issues. However, we still want to continue the discussion with you guys. If you have any thoughts on this episode and the topics discussed, DM us on Instagram at openfloorpodcast or get in touch with us via our website at openfloor.me forward slash home. I also want to thank Amin Purgola Muhammad for producing this and all of our episodes. I'm Ali Mosallai. And I'm Aryan Narayan. And until next time, thank you for listening to Open Floor.